This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw and Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. Did you know that pulses like beans, peas, and lentils are not only super nutritious, they're also incredibly sustainable. Pulses have one of the lowest water and carbon footprints of any other protein source. That is why we love getting samples of local Pulse, who make just-add-water meals like cocoa and buckwheat muesli or chipotle and lime black bean hummus. Order from localpulse.ca and have them delivered to your door. Make sure to use the code PAW20 to save 20% on your order. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 78 of Paw and Order. I'm your co-host, Camille Labchuk, joined today by Peter Sankoff. Peter, it has been a while. It's been a while, Camille. I've been, uh, I feel like I've been on a spiritual journey, just trying to make sense of it all during this crazy madness time. Yeah, yeah. You're getting a little philosophical <laughs> on me. I was more just thinking it's been a while since you and I had an episode together because we kind of had oh, some yeah, guest hosts too. for a while and then we skipped last week just because our schedules were a little bit uh, mad. But it's nice it's to busy. be back. It's nice to be back. Yes, it is. It's very nice to be back. It's busy. I, I Finishing up semester is always busy. If you're a listener, you'll know I, I cringe at the December episodes and the April episodes because I have a lot of marking to do. So it's like really hard to find the time to do what we need to do here. But I hear this is sort of your last like big hump of university <laughs> work before something exciting. Yeah, that's right. I'm going on, I'm on sabbatical. As soon as I finish these exams, I've got, uh, I'm looking at the pile right now. I have like half, half of the exams left to mark. So I'm, once that finishes, I am done. I'm done. I'm done until next January, which is great. I'm very excited to go on sabbatical so I can just do all the work that's been piling up on my desk. Yeah, it's just like a break, isn't it? Not really at all. <laughs> It's a break. It's a break to give me time to do the other things that I've been piling up on my desk. I mean, that's the thing about sabbatical. It's like usually people go on sabbatical and sabbatical is great. I mean, you know, normal non-academic humans don't have sabbaticals and I can't complain about sabbaticals, but I've been on enough of them to know that what ends up happening is you just catch up on what you're unable to do. And especially in a COVID year, like the COVID year has been, I'll be honest, it's been incredibly difficult. It's been incredibly difficult for students, but it's been incredibly difficult for profs. Like I, I've been teaching long enough that my teaching is pretty much a get up and go type of thing, right? It's like I, I can just pretty much show up and go. Like I'm, I've got it down to a science, but not this year. Everything had to be redone from scratch because we had to figure out how to transfer it into an online world. So like every prof I know is just absolutely crushed. Students too, of course, because they had to learn in an online world. But yeah, it was a very different year. And it's like everything you were working on got set 
aside. I don't think I advanced a single academic project all year long. It's mm. crazy. There was just no way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think people in a variety of industries are just feeling like that, just like kind of underwater and keeping their heads above. But that's about it right now. What do you think? We haven't discussed this recently. So I'm curious if you have any like academic intel, but are, are classes going to be back in person in the fall in most places, do you think? I mean, Alberta wants to go. Um, there's no doubt that like every word we're getting from the university is that they're back in the fall. And luckily I don't have to deal with that because I'm not back till January. But um, it, it seems like, I, I, I think we're on track for everyone to get two vaccination doses by by the fall. And I, th I just have a feeling that once everybody is vaccinated twice, um, notwithstanding certain people who are non-vaxxers, um, I just think we're gonna have enough Critical mass that we will end up with, you know, a form of herd immunity, or at least the consequences will be so much less that we're going to stop worrying about them. That's just my that's just my guess. I actually I actually do think we're in the end game. It just it's amazing how badly we fucked up every aspect of the end game. But the good news, at least, Camille, is that in Alberta, schools are still humming along, and my kids get to go to. Oh no, wait, we killed that too. That uh, that dream has died uh, thanks to. And and to be honest, it's I think it's the right call to finally pull the kids out of school, but it just shows how disastrous things have gotten in Alberta that, you know, we have to come to this so close to the end. And it's just, honestly, it's just because of, it's completely the government's doing. I, I, what's hilarious is that the, the, I'm sorry, I'm going on a rant now, but like, it's hilarious when you listen to the government, they think it's everybody else is doing. And like, I look at it and I'm just like, you're the government. Like, it's completely you're doing. Every decision you've made has got us to this point. Like, there is nothing, sure, people haven't abided by the restrictions, but your failure to enforce them or your failure to set clear, understandable restrictions is what got us here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it signals like when we're talking about Alberta in particular, it signals from the top throughout about the importance of lockdowns, the importance of restrictions. And the signal is consistently being, eh, we don't really like this. We're not really going to enforce it. So, you know, kind of do what you will. Leave it to you guys to be personally responsible and decide. But of course, we know from just so many studies now around the world that like the best thing for both the economy, people's mental health, all these other, and of course, disease rates and, and protecting us from death is actual serious sustained like COVID zero policies, which this country west of New Brunswick and south of the territories has been completely unable to grasp. So I don't know. It's just it's just disappointing. Well, they just they've just ignored it. And it's it, it's it's cardinal stupidity. I'm still like I keep going back to those days in February that make me the angriest of all the things that the government's done wrong. And there's many of them. Um, it, it was just the height of stupidity when the government announced in February that it was opening everything up again. And it was just because, you know, hospital numbers were low. That's what their, that was their, those were their tracking numbers. It's like, as long as we can keep 300 people or less in the hospital, we can open everything up again and get the economy going. And I'm just like, I have the Twitter evidence to prove it. I'm going apoplectic going, how stupid are you people? Like this is going to end very, very badly. It's just the, every, every, every piece of evidence we know says that if you start getting people indoors, which is what these gatherings were, cause it was January, February, it's just, you're encouraging people to go indoors. I didn't go indoors. 
I wouldn't go into these things, but they opened everything up. Schools opened up, uh, you know, every just about everything. Restaurants opened up. And what happened? Like we just curved back right back up again. It was just, it, it was cataclysmically stupid. And then of course they denied all responsibility saying that people weren't taking the restrictions seriously enough. I'm like, you're the ones not taking the restrictions seriously. Yeah, it's like, we're all staying home as hard as we can, most of us anyway. I don't think there's much more we can do at this point without effective government policy. I won't even get into the Ontario mess right now because I feel like I've tweeted enough about that. And it's just, if I can stop thinking about it for a while, I think that's good for my mental health. But yeah, we're living in frustrating times. The the bright news though, the hope on the horizon feeder is vaccines, which you and I both have now. Yes, I got my vaccine a while ago. Um, I, I We've missed a few shows, so but I'm pretty sure I got it after our last show. Um, so I've been vaccinated for a while. I was in an early category because of medical conditions. And it's great. My wife also got her vaccination. And today, just today, Camille, we found out that they uh, uh, Health Canada is approving the vaccine for 12 years old and up. And I I just happened to know a 12. Well, she is 11, but she happens to be turning 12 at just the right time. <laughs> she oh. turns 12 in, in a month from now. So my daughter will get the vaccine as well, which is just fantastic. Go so, Penny. so, I mean, all these things are great and it's like a real change, but it has been very frustrating to watch. And I'll be honest, Camille, watching the government's approach to to law, especially in Alberta, has reminded me a lot about animal welfare law. Honestly, I think the parallels are very strong. And I say that because if you want to see what happens to a society when we don't enforce the law, just look at the way we're dealing with COVID. And most of the problems in Alberta have sprung out of a complete refusal by the government to enforce the laws that we have. And as a result, I mean, you had to hear Kenny on his press conference the other day talking about, well, if we start enforcing the law and if we put more laws in, like people won't abide by them and it's going to be chaos. So we're just going to count on Albertans to do the right thing. And I'm like, look, if you want to make a mockery of the law and have people look at it and say, well, this isn't working and it doesn't actually do anything. So why should I care about it? I mean, that is the way we treat our animal welfare laws. It's we almost look at all like, these violations. It's almost Peter, like Kenny went and just read some papers about animal welfare law enforcement and was like, oh, I think I know what I can do here. Here's yes. a great model for yeah. me. We can just completely ignore these laws and pretend they don't exist and let industries and people make up their own rules for their own conduct. Well, well that's exactly what, you know, we've talked about NFAC rules, right? It's about like ideas these are guidelines and like thoughts for people to engage. And, and of course, like every time we look at a farm industry or there's an investigation, you find violation after violation, because like the truth of the matter is, if you make laws unenforceable or refuse to enforce them, this is what happens. Like there's a general and I actually think there's a wider disrespect for the lawmaking function. If you put all these laws into place and say, well, we're not going to enforce these, um, that is essentially a signal to, to the people that the laws don't really matter. No, and there's symbolic what, laws only. If you're not actually going to enforce them, you no might question. as well not have the laws because they, sitting on the books, they just provide this veneer of action or veneer of legitimacy. They're essentially, you know, greenwashing, whitewashing, humanewashing, whatever you want to call it. They serve that function if you're not actually enforcing them. Yeah. And I think the wider, you know, it's just, I, it, it's honestly, it's honestly hard to calculate how much damage our governments have done to, honestly, to the democratic process and the rule of law. 
through their actions. I mean, their actions have been devastating because of what they've done to people who have suffered and died from COVID primarily. But I also think there's just been incredible damage done to the entire democratic endeavor. I really do believe that like our faith in the democratic process is at an all time low. I personally have never had less faith in the democratic process. And I, I've never been on the high end of it anyway, in terms of, you know, faith that our governments will do the right thing. But but this experience takes it to an, a new all time low. And I, I don't think I'm alone. You have people from all sides looking at this and just going, really, is this the best we can do? Is this really uh, as good as it gets? And apparently it is. This is as good as it gets. I've been feeling the same way, Peter. And, you know, I used to think uh, like you, I've never been at the super high end of faith in the democratic process. I, you know, believe it uh, in it and I trust it to some extent. And I'm glad that we have it, but I've never really seen it be transformative. Um, but I did think that we were probably going to be fairly good at responding to an acute crisis. We're bad at long term things, you know, climate change, which is on the horizon. It's far down the road. Uh, well, not really, but that's the way people perceive it. The worst effects anyway. So it's like it's down the road. It's a diffusion of responsibility. Like I sort of understand the human psychology reasons why we've been really bad at climate change. But when you look at COVID, which is an acute immediate crisis right here in front of us that we all have responsibility for and that we can control quite easily, we know what works. Our utter failure to do anything has just been really depressing, frankly, is the word for it. And it's particularly troublesome because you saw that the initial response to the crisis, um, leaving aside obvious gaps like uh, the way in which long term care facilities were, were dealt with, which was, you know, is, is a scandal of our time. Really, I've been reading Andre Picard's book, which is excellent on that subject. So leaving aside that, you did get a sense that people all understood the risks. We were all petrified and everybody for the greater good did the right thing and stayed home and did what they had to do. And then after that, like it's been a combination of bad management, terrible messaging. Honestly, like in Alberta, the messaging has just been horrible from day one. If I see those fucking idiots get up to a lectern one more time and put hand sanitizer on, I'm going to throw the bottle at them. Like, yeah, I know the symbolism of hand sanitizer. The is symbolism so funny, of like, the stupid fucking hand sanitizer. Basically it's so ridiculous. Like, it's it's there's no there's no scientific evidence to, to show that it matters to begin with. But whatever, even if it does matter, every time they do it, it just makes me want to scream like they keep encouraging people to do the right thing. But they don't put the policies behind that to actually make it sensible. And even in Alberta, even now with the lockdown, because we're, we're in we are. I mean, they've closed the schools. <laughs> they finally closed workout studios and stuff like they've closed the schools and they have closed. They've closed patios. So they've made they've made something. And let me just say the closing of the patios, I'm all into it because you've got to see these fucking patios in Edmonton. Like these things to me are not outdoors. They're completely enclosed patios. I don't think the air circulation is amazing in those things. And quite frankly, everything like that just encourages people to push things to the absolute limit. So I'm actually in favor of them closing those all down. Let's close it down for a few weeks. Let's try and beat this thing down because we're in a crisis situation, right? I get that. But they still don't have the heart to close down other stuff like they just they keep okay retail capacity it's now down to 10 percent. like what the fuck does that mean i have yet to see any store i've go into pay any heed to the numbers it's not like they're sitting there counting them out it's like there's a general guesstimate and you can go and you can do i don't go to that many stores but occasionally i have been to a store here and there i'm trying to stay out of everything because I, i'm trying to actually obey the policies but the policies are so incoherent and the policy messaging is so so poor that it's not surprising to me that people just get fed up and
and don't do anything. Like there is a, a significant portion of the populace that is gonna ignore things, whatever, right? The anti-vax idiots, the COVID idiots, they're gonna do whatever they're gonna do. I get it. But if you continue to pro provide inconsistent messaging that doesn't make sense, you are gonna confuse a lot of people who genuinely wanna respect the laws, but they don't find that the laws make any sense. And the more the laws don't make sense, the less likely people are to follow. Yeah, yeah. So there's, there's a lot there. And at the risk of, you know, someone coming in and putting an R rating on this podcast with all those F-bombs, Peter, or else it's turning into a COVID podcast. Why don't we move on to some <laughs> animal topics again? Um, <laughs> I'm angry, Camille. Gosh, darn it. I know. Yes, let's talk know, about, it's frustrating. let's talk about some animal things, Camille, because like there is some sad news to report. There, there is, is some sad news to report. It's happy uh, sad our, news. Our, our, our mascot is no longer here. I, I'm very disappointed. So my foster bunny, Maddie, got adopted last weekend, which was so exciting. I mean, I'm so happy for her, but I'm also sad. And not by her. Camille. Let's be clear. Not yeah, I was Camille. not a foster fail in this case. I've, you know, I'm moving soon. I've got a cat. You know, it's too much. So that's okay. But she got adopted into a lovely home with another bunny named Bagel. So that's really cute. And hopefully they'll be BFFs. And yeah, I just think it was like, honestly, having a rabbit around for the last like four months really got me through this winter. I'm not sure how I would sure. have done it without the joyful little presence. Without so I wish her Maddie. all the best. Well, we, we, we wish Maddie the best. Uh, did they change her name to Camille as I requested? Uh, <laughs> I hope not. They didn't do that. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, poor Maddie. Poor Maddie. She'll never be loved as much as she was when she was in Camille's clutches. I'll tell you that. No matter how good her home is, it won't be as good as what she was getting with Camille. I'm telling you. Camille treats those foster bunnies very, very well. They are very cute. And shout out to Rabbit Rescue Inc., which is the organization through which I fostered here. They're just a great group of volunteers. They do amazing work for all kinds of little creatures. Here, here. All right, Peter. We have some new reviews. So if you're listening to this wow, podcast, do we ever? Do we ever? We've got a bunch of new reviews. We're only going to choose a couple to read out, but uh, reviews are great because if you leave a review, if you like us, you know, give us five stars if you like. We've got over 155 star ratings. And if you actually take the time to write out a review, that really bumps us up in the algorithm and it helps more people find this podcast. So, Peter, a couple new reviews. Why don't you read the first one from sure. Mirdral? Five star. Five star from Mirdral. Thank you, Mirdral. A great show. I couldn't agree more. Great show. I've only just discovered this show, so I'm now going back and listening to all the older episodes. Isn't that fun? Because like most of our shows aren't that topical, so you can go through them all and just, you know, explore what it's like in the early days. Uh, love the content. The show is very informative and brings to light many stories and issues I either hadn't thought of or heard about. Keep up the good work. We will, Mirdral. Thank you for your review. Thank you. That is great. And we have another review I'm going to read from Liberation for All 108, who again gives us five stars. Thank you. And says, fantastic podcast. Highly informative and enjoyable. I really appreciate how structured and varied the content is. Animal justice does such important work and the podcast is perfect for keeping the public informed on the issues. That is very kind of you to say. That's why we do it is to keep people informed, give you all the you know latest news on these topics as they come up. So thank you for your reviews. That and our inordinately extravagant and salaries for doing the show. We've, we've, we've struck it rich being podcast co-hosts. Uh, oh yeah, big time. Um, <laughs> to that end. <laughs> Although I do have my coffee mug in hand, the perk. We're actually both drinking perk. out of our pot and order mugs right now. <laughs> and if, if only this show were visual, you'd see me with my supersized pot and order mug, which is pretty much the salary I have drawn from this show. Um, you can nonetheless support us and we love all your support. 
support on Patreon. Visit our Patreon page um, to to support us for as little as $1 per month. You really do keep the show running. We've also got some Patreon prize tiers. $5 a month gets you a mailed card to say thanks, but they also get a pawn order sticker. And I have my pawn order sticker right here, Camille. There's my... I oh, I see other, that on your my printer. My other big payout, the pawn order sticker. Um, if you go to $20 a month, you get your choice between an official pawn order mug or a pawn order t-shirt. You now, too. I'm not wearing my pawn order t-shirt. Me neither, but you can have the mug, the fancy, fancy mug. That's true. We also have t-shirts available for everyone at shop.animaljustice.ca. And if you support us at $10 a month, you get a 15% discount to buy all the pawn order t-shirts that you want. Absolutely fantastic. And I believe, Camille, that we might have a giveaway today as well. I think you're right, Peter. So Local Pulse, you just heard our Local Pulse ad and we are just really excited to be doing a giveaway in collaboration with Local Pulse for our Patreon supporters, which is another huge perk of Patreon, which is that if you're a member of Patreon, you get chosen by this random number generator for prizes, which we do kind of all the time, it feels like. We do. We do. Can I say a word or two about Local Pulse? Please. I, I don't think I'm on the ad. So let me just say a couple words. First of all, I am surprised at how much I like their products. And I say that because I, I was not, I think they have to get over an initial, well, why would you eat that sort of factor with the product? Because like it had never occurred to me. Some of their products are, are you know, obviously breakfast cereals. It makes sense. You add water to them and you get a good breakfast cereal. But I was really surprised with their dips in how good they are. And I, I absolutely love them because like we, we, we keep them in our house. And when you have guests over, as we did yesterday in an outdoor setting, we had guests over and we didn't have anything, you know, to serve really, but we had local pulse and it was fantastic. They do this amazing chili hummus and they do a back black bean dip and we've brought them out repeatedly and they're really excellent. They give you a really, just a nice, you know, portion for sharing. It's a really properly sized portion. You don't make a ton of it. It doesn't last you for three weeks and you end up throwing it all away. I'm honestly incredibly impressed by their products. And let me just say for travel, I'm going to take like 50 local pulse with me when I go traveling places where I can't, I'm not, you know, where I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get great food because they're fantastic. You add water and you've got some amazing stuff in there. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I'm so impressed with local pulse. I love the cereals. The dips are also super cool. And just the idea of thinking about traveling again is also kind of exciting. So that's yeah, that's great. So one of our lucky Patreon supporters is going to win this prize. So Peter, I've got the list of supporters. You're going to generate so the I've random got number the, uh, generator. between one and 36. Uh, okay, I've got the random generator. All right. And the number is 17. 17. Oh, that's Roxanne Duvet. Congratulations, Roxanne. Oh, Roxanne. Woo. We were hoping it was going to be you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have the list. I don't know who's on there. But Roxanne, congratulations. I hope you enjoy some local pulse because it is darn good. Let us know, please let us know. We'll be in touch to help you claim your prize, Roxanne. Thanks for being a supporter and thanks to the rest of you too. Local Pulse makes Just Add Water plant-based meals that are big in flavor, but low on environmental impact. Founder Ken Fawcett started creating dehydrated hummus and muesli with beans, peas, and lentils because they have one of the lowest water and carbon footprints of any protein source. Lorania from Calgary says that local pulse foods are quick, easy, tasty, and nutritious. What's not to love? This stuff only takes a minute, but tastes like it's made from scratch. Take one of the dips with you when you're on a road trip or a camping trip, and you've got an elegant happy hour snack. Just add market veggies or crackers. 
Order from localpulse.ca and have healthy vegan food delivered to your door that you won't find getting funky in the back of the fridge. Don't forget to use the coupon code PAW20 to save 20% on your order at localpulse.ca. All right, we have got um, one of our shows where we are just deluged, Camille, deluged with news. So this is gonna be an all new show because we have a lot of news to cover because we were off for an extra week. Sorry to bring that up. Yeah, the main topic uh, today is news. It is news. We had a name for that, but I've already forgotten what it was. We asked our listeners to write in. I thought it was nosing through the news, but I don't think it it is. I think it was something else. Was it nosing through the news? That's what I remember. Main topic today is nosing through the news. And the first of many news items that we've got involves Canada's environmental protection law is um, going under some reforms and we believe it's going to have some important impact on animal testing. Yeah, so this is actually a pretty cool move. So CEPA, Canadian Environmental Protection Act, it's sort of our national toxics legislation that tries to keep people, animals and the planet healthy and away from toxins. And the government had been planning for a while, I think, to introduce some reforms to CEPA just to update it for the modern era. And one thing that they've included in in these reforms in the preamble to their bill is recognition that we need to move away from doing these toxicity tests on animals and we need to move towards supporting alternatives to animal testing. So this, Peter, I think is pretty cool. Now, let me just say... It would have been better if there was specific language in the act, not just the preamble talking about this, because the preamble to an act for all the non-lawyers out there, it's sort of like the statement of values that underlies the act. It doesn't always have legal effect in the same way as a provision that might say, uh, we're going to do X by X date. So I think this is a really good signal about the importance the government places on this. Uh, Toxicity tests, Peter, are some of the worst, most painful tests that animals and labs endure. In fact, a lot of those tests are category E tests, which is sort of the worst type of pain that you can experience as an animal. Uh, They include things like, you know, forced dosage. So you feed an animal a bunch of a product and see how many of them die. Uh, Things like skin tests, things like eye tests, all these types of tests trying to tell us whether products are safe for humans. And of course, the problem here is that these tests are based on animal biology and not human biology. So they often don't correspond to what we know to be safe or unsafe in humans. And I think that's why this is a good move. So we're hoping to, you know, see it strengthened and also hoping that the government's going to commit to actually funding the Canadian Centre for Alternatives to Animal Methods, which is at the University of Windsor, and is working on developing these alternatives. And they need funding to do this work. Well, speaking of alternatives, Camille, it's always better to find alternatives to uh, research, given our next story, the continued, um, I don't know what the right word is. Can we say apocalypse? (laughs) The continued continued apocalypse that is Laurentian University. And that's not a joke. Like what's going on at Laurentian University is so troubling on so many levels for just like a university is going bankrupt. And like what that does, let me just say, like to the people who work there, to the students who go there, once once it goes down that cyclical hole, it's going to be really troublesome to get away from. So they've shut down many departments, including many science departments. And that has resulted in, you know, some really quick, some really hasty decisions. We've got to move. We've got to get all this stuff taken care of. So let's shut down these lab facilities as quickly as we can. And of course, the easiest way to shut down lab facilities is by euthanizing the animals. And that seems to be what's going on at Laurentian. Yeah. And obviously Laurentian didn't announce this publicly. This only came to light because they had a Zoom call internally where somebody on that call was like, I don't think this is right. And that person leaked the information to the media. And so it was reported on extensively 
they put out a statement. So people were very concerned about this. Obviously, there was a lot of public pressure for them not to euthanize these animals because there are so many rescue groups in this province, Peter, who would be happy to take those rats and take those mice and find homes for them if it's medically possible. And Laurentian put out this statement that I just found really stomach churning. It said Mm. basically that none of the animals were cats or dogs. They were mostly small animals and they were (laughs) kind of implying that people shouldn't really care because we're not talking about cats. We're not talking about dogs. It's just about the mice. It's kind of funny, Camille, because, uh, well, it's not funny. Um, I did a, I did a, I did a, a problem on my exam that had a secret animal in it. It was my criminal law kit course. And I was doing like sort of a strict liability regulatory offense where a dog gets its nose caught in a trap. And the question is whether the person's liable. And it's like, everybody's like going on about how, oh, it's only supposed to get mice. <laughs> so there's no problem. And she was really trying hard to keep dogs out of the trap. And I'm like, what about the mice? Uh, yeah. It's all good as long as it's just mice. That's essentially the message coming from Laurentian, right? The weakest and smallest of the animals. We don't like them. They're vermin. That's what we brand them. That's our way of branding particular animals, vermin or pests. And therefore we can do it them to them whatever we like by virtue of our branding. That's absolutely right. So, you know, Animal Justice reached out. I, I emailed the university. I know a lot of other people did too, including rescue groups, trying to make some inroads, trying to say, please just let us help you with these animals. This is a bad news story for them. I don't know why they wouldn't want to you know, help in the rescue. Actually, though, I do. I do. So, Peter, it's interesting because in a number of U.S. states, there have been statutes passed that, that mandate that labs must make attempts to adopt out certain animals if they're no longer going to be used in experiments. And I think this is mostly cats and dogs, although I haven't reviewed these statutes super closely. But it's interesting because the, the experimenters hate those, right? Because it, it humanizes. I shouldn't say it humanizes, but it, sure. it gives a face and a name and a story to the animals who are used in research. Mm-hmm. And the people who take these animals often put out video content about their lives afterwards and what it's like. And it just reminds people about the unsavory stuff happening behind closed doors of labs. And I'm sure Laurentian much easier, much, much cleaner, much cleaner Cleaner. to just kill them all. Yeah. It's cleaner for the, for the users. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's disappointing. I guess, I guess Laurentian feels what's, I guess Laurentian at this point is sort of like, what's one more bad news story. (laughs) You can't hurt us. We're already, we're already destroying ourselves. Yeah. So I guess that just doesn't matter. Boy, but still um, very disappointing and uh, something that I think we should be concerned about for sure. Yeah. And let me just add, this is not unique to Laurentian. This is happening probably every day in every university in in the country, Um, certainly every week or every month with regularity. We just happened to hear about it this time and it became a news story, but this happens regularly. That is true. We don't care. Our uh, monitoring is virtually non-existent. You you talked about this. To be honest, we don't need to redo this because I I did listen to your COVID show that you did with with, uh, Jessica and you went through our lack of monitoring for research stuff pretty, pretty thoroughly. Yep. So go listen back to that one. Yeah, and you'll you'll hear how bad it is. Every time you think farm animals have it bad, you could say, well, it could be worse. They could be research animals. Yeah, yeah, seriously. Actually, they both have it pretty bad. Well, but then again, the the dairy cattle get the brush. So I, mm. I, I feel like their lives brush. are pretty darn good because the they brush. get the brush. Yeah. Okay, let's move on. All right, story of the Manitoba. Two Manitobans have been infected with rare swine flu variants. So... Um, yeah. I found this to be a really weird story, Camille, because I wasn't aware of the fact that diseases could jump the species barrier. Like that's never happened before. It's shocking, isn't it? I mean, who could have predicted it that is. something it's like just, this might wow. occur? 
<laughs> wow, it is it is hard to believe. And 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 I'm telling you, I was watching um this is just to get off topic cuz that's what we do cuz I was watching about COVID stuff and it's like, man, you watch some of the news programming that's been done about COVID and you see the conditions and the things that are going on that are causing this in certain parts of the world. Like, I mean, I don't want to say that our farm industries are scot-free, but like comparatively to what's going on in certain parts of China where there's the interaction. I mean, those wet markets are just like, those seem like some of the worst places on earth in terms of bringing all these different species that are not supposed to be together and just creating this lab experiment for how best to create viruses. It is just amazing to me that those places don't get shut down. Yeah, well, there's lots of people campaigning to that end. We'll see if it actually happens because we we all know that the almighty dollar trumps common sense in most cases, but... Well, not in Manitoba, Camille. That's certainly not in Manitoba. Let's see what's going on there. Well, let's let's just, uh, you know, some context here. Manitoba has a massive pig industry. So that's a um, huge thing for the province. So we've got a situation where these two people who experienced influenza-like symptoms went in for testing to see if they had COVID. And that's the only reason that these flus were detected. You know, you can imagine the situation where we're not doing all this COVID testing and people just get the flu and they assume it's the flu and they get over it and they go back to their lives. Uh, that could easily happen. In this case, we happen to detect it because of COVID tests. So... These two people were unrelated. So clearly pigs are transmitting this virus to people in unrelated ways. Um, apparently one of the cases was from somebody who had contact with animals on the farm. And the other one was someone who had indirect contact, which I puzzled over, Peter. I'm not sure what that meant um, other than that they could have caught it from somebody else. So it's kind of unclear. Yeah, it's not clear. I'm looking at it right now. It's not, it, they don't have a lot of information. Like there's not a lot of information about where it's from. You know, aside from that, it took place in southern Manitoba. There's not a lot of there's just not a lot of evidence in the story. They do warn us, of course, very strongly that the pork is absolutely safe to eat. Let's be very clear. You're not going to transmit it from eating it. So eat away. Right? Oh, yeah. The, oh, yeah. I mean, it's funny that we'll, we'll post a link in this to this story in the show notes so you can see for yourself. But the entire thrust of it is like, don't worry. It's OK, it's okay to farm pigs. It's OK to Everything's eat the pork. Good. You're fine. It kind of. You know, obviously not comparing this to the COVID crisis, but it kind of reminds me of the early reassuring messaging from public health authorities when COVID first oh, started happening. Don't worry, there's no human to human transmission. Oh, don't worry, it's just in China. Oh, don't worry. So yeah, I, oh, I don't good know. To know. I feel reassured. I'm I worried. feel reassured. I'm glad to know that it's absolutely safe to eat and not transmittable to people through for pork. So it's just fantastic. I feel very reassured. I know I can trust pork producers to do the right thing in all cases, you know, in terms of what's best for animals and what's best for humans. That's yeah. what I've been told. So I'm going to I'm gonna be safely You're reassured fine. on that. You're score. fine. Yeah. Well, let me just say as well, because this segues into uh, a study that was that, that came out just in the last couple of weeks by some researchers, psychology researchers, who show people who consume meat products, you know, evidence about viral transmission from factory farms. And perhaps unsurprisingly, because this is what I've noticed over the last year, people who are consuming those products have a very high level of cognitive dissonance and are not willing to open open their minds to or consider the evidence that this type of farming is problematic. 
So I, you know, I think that explains a lot that we've probably already noticed intuitively from the work that we do about how this, this message and this concern over what firms are doing in terms of viral risk is just not resonating with policymakers or the public. By the way, Camille, I, I, this, I don't know why this jumped into my mind right now, but I'm just going to throw it in there because I'm kind of this random idea generator myself. And it, it occurred to me when we were talking about what people eat, we, we, I feel like we failed in our opening news segment to mention something that may or may not be deserving of mention, but I'm going to mention it anyway, that the Impossible Burger has come to Canada at Burger King when we're, we, we have mentioned in the past uh, many of the fast food franchises in Canada that have launched products. We certainly talked a lot about KFC's plant chicken burger, and we've talked about A&W on many times. And I, I do think it's at least noteworthy that uh, Burger King has come to the table. They've been, they've had this in the U.S. for for many months. In fact, on a past episode, I'm sure I talked about going to Burger King on a trip with my daughter into the U.S. And uh, now I don't have to do that anymore. I can go to my local Burger King here, should I choose to do so, and buy an Impossible Burger Pretty without cool. mayonnaise. Without mayonnaise. Of course. Hold the mayo. They're not vegan. Yeah, hold the mayo. Yeah, so um, we've got again, Beyond Impossible. I think let, it's, let me just add one more thing since yep. we went on this tangent of like cool vegan news. <laughs> There's yeah, two yeah. things actually. Let's do it. A, Epicurious, the recipe website, decided to stop publishing new beef recipes because of climate change, because beef is obviously destroying the planet. So that was cool. Uh, tons of excitement around that, tons of blowback too. And then just a week later, the world's best vegan New re- York. The, sorry, the world's new best York. Restaurant, I think. There's like three Michelin star restaurants, 11 Madison Park. The chef, Daniel Hume, announced that when it reopens in a few weeks after COVID, it is going entirely plant based. Plant based. Sign of the times. Plant based. Yes. Well, we are now, of course, yeah, just, uh, I mean, I think that's obviously a sign of the times. And, uh, you know, getting plant based food has never been easier. And uh, I am eagerly awaiting um, the uh, McDonald's inevitable. McVegan, which I thought was pretty good when I tried it in Germany. That'll get here as well. And uh, yeah, obviously any changes of this sort are are simply big positives for uh, getting people much more used to this type of food. And honestly, I'm of the belief that food is the only way forward. uh, And that is the way to change. And to be honest, I'll be be quite honest with you. um, I like the Beyond Burger and all that, but I just, I, if I'm going to be stuck in a choice now, Camille, I don't know about your particular preferences, where I have the, um, I am stuck with, you know, small town, which in Alberta exists. And I've got my choice of Burger King, A&W or KFC, for example, I'm most likely to go to Burger King because I find the Whopper is just, I just think it's a better size. I don't like the, the A&W ones bother me because they're small and the A&W Whopper is a Whopper. It's the proper size of what a burger should be. So I will have to do some more taste testing on that, but that is uh, my preference that I would lean to at the moment. And for some reason, reason, I have to be honest with you, I lean slightly towards impossible over beyond. I'm not sure why. I just find something about the flavoring just appeals to me. Do yeah, you have any everyone, preferences in that regard? I, I think I lean slightly beyond, but it changes. Like I'll have some impossible and be like, oh, that's damn good. And then so is beyond. So I think I'm kind of like equal opportunity. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. all good. Okay. Anyway, to, so to, back to, to our pig story. Yeah. Very bad. Manitoba pig <laughs> industry. Bad. Swine flu. Bad. <laughs> 
All right. Next up, Peter. Do we have a, a rare good news story coming up, I Camille? Think we yes. might. I think we do. All right. So in New Zealand, the government has announced an end to the livestock sea export industry. So we've harped on quite a bit about live export on this podcast before. And just the abject suffering that animals endure for days, weeks at a time, sometimes months at a time on these boats. And it's pretty cool news to see that New Zealand is actually uh, interested in winding this industry down over the next two years. Yeah. And they've like, it's interesting because like there have had um, New Zealand is the smaller of the the two live export nations. Um, Australia has always been bigger. And New Zealand, um, after certain incidents, I believe it was in the 2010s, um, had interim bans. So they had bans that were temporary and then they got restored. But this, this sounds like something more permanent. Like this is where they actually came out and say, no, it's going to be a permanent ban. Um, we need to stay ahead of the curve and we need to respect animal welfare. And certainly I think that's a great move. I mean, this is this is trade that's worth $77 million. Not huge, but in the New Zealand, you know, even in the New Zealand market, a much smaller country, but also not insignificant. And I think, you know, we're talking about um, in 2020, 113,000 cattle were exported overseas in ways that inevitably led to a lot of suffering and sometimes led to mass disaster, especially, you know, we've heard about the situation earlier this year when the Suez Canal is blocked, animals are suffering for long periods of time on board. And I think it's really positive um, um, that that we're, that New Zealand is just deciding, you know what, we're not doing this anymore. It is now uh, time to just get rid of it. I, I like one of the quotes in the, uh, the, art, uh, the article. It says, look, the voyage, it just recognizing that no matter what we do, the voyage poses challenges for animal welfare. And like, I couldn't agree more. You're setting up a situation, and we've talked about this on many occasions, where there is just a lot of risk to the animals. Even in the best case scenario, animals are going to suffer uh, to some extent. And in the worst case scenario, which comes to pass more often than we would like, the animals suffer a lot. So I think any changes of this sort that get rid of a practice that is, uh, you know, really troubling are, are in advance, certainly in our way of thinking about animals. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I hope that Australia will be inspired by this move. Not too far away. Um, but, you know, that just is, that is always that is always the hope. Australia now, and, and other way, nations, too. I mean, Canada, <laughs> we export a ton of live animals, um, some by sea, which, you know, I don't really know that much about, to be honest. But it's a, it's a problem all over the world. And I just think that this is really great. First of all, that they recognize the inherent cruelty of this industry. There is no way to reform it. They're not interested in reforming it. And great that they just acknowledge the importance of animal welfare and the fact that other countries are paying attention to this issue and you've got to stay on it to be ahead of the curve. It's, it's cool. Yeah, I mean, again, any 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 choice of this nature is not easy. And you read through the article and you see lots of other things that disturb you, such as, of course, we can make it up in other ways through our other ways of exploiting animals. <laughs> it's, it's certainly not, you know, kumbaya, everything is all good moving forward. But like you read the, you know, statements from the critics and it's like, you know, they're like, this is the apocalypse, all the usual stuff. My favorite is, you know, all the same statements I've heard over 
over and over again. This trade is conducted humanely. We have world-leading standards, all the reasons why it should continue. Other countries are going to do it worse than us. And it's just, I don't don't find these arguments compelling. You have to start somewhere. And, you know, I think it is important. You know, the UK earlier this year did the same thing. They had a much smaller export trade, but they announced they were banning live export too. If only Canada would follow in that stead. We don't don't ship too many uh, animals by sea as far as I'm aware. I I know we do ship a lot of horses by air, which is uh, is problematic in its own right. We actually do ship a fair amount of animals by sea out of the Montreal port. It's, again, a a topic I don't know a ton about. Obviously, industries keep this information secret, but yeah, I mean, we can't even get our government to ban live horse export, which has been demonstrable, uh, you know, demonstrable cruelty in that industry. So something to work on, but I will celebrate this good news because it is undeniably good news and hopefully a sign of more things to come. That is very true. Now, our next story involves uh, a case. Uh, We have a rare, detailed, lengthy decision out of Nova Scotia. The case is called um, the Queen and Robertson. You can actually find the case online. I'll give you the citation if you want to go look it up yourself. It is called, the case is called Robertson and the citation is 2021 NSPC 21. If you type all those things into Google, I'm pretty confident you will get this decision. It is a decision involving a dog breeder uh, where things appear according to the SPCA to have gone wrong and after a very lengthy detailed review of the evidence the judge decided everything was okay and that the uh, uh, breeder should be acquitted because she tried her best to avoid causing distress to her animals. Camille, what are your thoughts on this decision? Yeah, well I've been waiting for this decision to come up for a while and Peter, you and I actually discussed this case briefly a few episodes back one of the last times that we were on together But at that point, we were just going off of a news story, which seemed a little bit troubling, and we hadn't had the benefit of reading the reasons. So now that we've got the reasons, I think we've got a lot more more to say about it. So the case ultimately involves a woman, Ms. Robertson, who operated a dog kennel for about 10 years. And the judge says that following a negative review posted to her website by a disgruntled customer, collie puppy sales immediately ceased and she was overwhelmed as the population of animals increased beyond her ability to provide her previous level of care. So there is no dispute in this case that she has too many dogs. The SPCA becomes aware of this situation because she contacted them to try to surrender some dogs. And then the SPCA tries to take some action to make sure that these dogs are not suffering distress because of the overcrowding situation that they are apparently left in. So she's got too many dogs. You can dogs. tell that if the judge if the judge wants to punish anyone, it's clearly the person who wrote that that disgruntled customer who posted the review. There's no question that the judge lays all yeah. the blame on oh. the unhappy customer. Well, let's just say this the judge is clearly very sympathetic to Ms. Robertson here. <laughs> no doubt. Clearly. Very sympathetic, finds in Ms. Robertson's favor on pretty much every issue and is quite and, critical. And in fairness, I didn't I didn't hear the evidence, right? I'm yeah, going to assume that the judge is correct in noting that she did, once things went wrong, she took a lot of effort. She didn't just, you know, leave it. I don't, I, I'm not as convinced as the judge is that she did everything she could have. And frankly, the fact that you put yourself in that situation to me is, you know, not something you get absolved of when things go badly. And that's, you know, a different topic to get into, but like I'll assume she did everything she could once things went badly. Yeah. Yeah. So the judge finds that basically she was duly diligent to avoid, you know, the 
the dog suffering distress. And what I find interesting about this, Peter, is like there is no discussion about what more she could have done. So the judge basically says like, yeah, she was trying so hard. She was like trying to reduce her dog. She spent all of her waking hours cleaning up after them. So the fact that there's a bunch and of trying to feces, interpret SPCA orders. Right. And of course, like that was what was really dragging her down. Like I, I, I just I'm, I'm you know, when I read the tone of the judge's decision, I'm just I'm struggling a little bit like the judge gives every benefit of the doubt to the accused. I wish I had some judges like that sometimes when I ran my clients, you know, but it's just like when she gets to the point where she's now blaming the SPCA for trying to impose orders that she can comply with. And oh, well, she had to now spend her time interpreting these complex orders. I'm like, OK, well, you can see this isn't going to end well in terms of a conviction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And again, you We're know, let, let me also say just a reminder that Peter and I did not see all the evidence in this case. Um, I'm generally quite pro-defense. I, uh, you know, think there's a lot of problems with the way our laws are enforced. So I'm not necessarily saying that women should have been convicted. I don't know based on the evidence because I haven't seen it. But there's a few interesting and sort of problematic parts of the decision that I think are worth going over. So I'll say from the outset that the judge like spends a lot of time on how this woman was clearly doing her best and trying to clean up after the dogs and the fact that there is like piles of feces all over the place and some of the dogs are dirty and muddy and may not have had food and water at all times. Um, you know, it's not really a big deal because she's trying to do her best, but there's never any discussion about maybe the fact that she's responsible for these dogs means she should hire some help if she can't do it all herself. She's engaged in a regulated activity, which is animal ownership. Why does she not have some obligation to seek some help if she can't do this herself? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things that I find troubling. Like the judge is like, let's just be clear that the judge didn't find a lot of distress. OK, and that's yeah. that's a factual finding that's kind of interesting in its own right. But did did agree that these were all these symptoms. The SPCA comes in, sees all these symptoms. It certainly doesn't look right. And the judge is just like, again, saying, well, you know, she did everything and her possibility. Yeah, this might have happened, but she did everything she could to avoid it. And I'm just sort of like, again, OK, well, there's two things that I have issue with. One is that, again, like she did put herself in that position. Like the, you can blame the disgruntled review all you want. She's got way too many dogs. I understand she's trying to get rid of them, but like she's breeding dogs for money. Like that is her job. She's decided to entertain in this enterprise. Like I just. You know, let's assume for a moment that I am running an oil well and things start to go problematic on my oil well and it starts to spill into the environment. Like I could just never see the court going, well, it's just too bad. Like things went out of control. Somebody wrote a negative review of your oil well. Customers didn't want to buy from you. And suddenly things are out of control. I just I just would never. It seems amazing to me that blame gets deflected that easily. Like that's all well and good. Great. But it's like, again, this wasn't somebody with a couple of dogs at home who ran on hard times. She bred dogs for the purpose of selling them and then couldn't keep up with a downturn in her business. Like I'm just, I, I'm a little less sympathetic than the judges because ultimately if the animals are suffering and to be clear, the judge wasn't convinced of that either. And that's a different, you know, thing, but let's assume that they were, I'm a little less sympathetic on that particular point. The second thing that bothers me about this is you see the same sort of mentality in the judgment that you see in other cases, 
which is what I call the snapshot mentality. And that's what really bothers me in animal cases is that judges take everything based on the snapshot. And then they give favorable ideas based on what the accused testifies to to fill in the snapshot, right? Because no one else has evidence except the accused. What I mean by that is compare this with a child abuse case or a child sexual abuse case or an adult sexual abuse case or whatever. You have the testimony of the victim to fill in the gaps and then the accused can say what they want and you weigh those testimonies. But in these cases, you have snapshots, which because the SPCA is not on the property, the inspectors only come on once and they see what's there and it looks really bad. So they take lots of pictures and then the judge fills in all the blanks of those pictures by listening to the accused. No, 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 they always had water. No, 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 it wasn't always that clean. No, 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 I was doing my best trying to do all this. The animals can't give any contrary evidence. Like what, what again, the indications from the, the SPCA when they look at it is that it's bad. But of course, like that is just one of the features of animal cases that make it so difficult. And I think, again, what bothers me in a lot of these cases is sort of this this default to, you know, all the hardships that the owners are going through rather than looking at what the animals need. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting and troubling aspect of the case. Now, what I find, I think, most interesting and not necessarily troubling about this case, Peter, and you and I have talked a lot about the codes Mm. on this podcast. So codes, they can come from NFAC, the farmed animal, you know, nonprofit. They can come from the body that oversees labs. And there's even a code for kennel operators, which I think is produced by the Canadian Kennel Club. So interestingly here, the SPCA uses that Canadian Kennel Club code or the Kennel Club code to um, fill in the blanks on certain orders. So they say, here's, you know, the code, you must comply with what the code says. So do these remedial measures to make sure that the dogs aren't experiencing distress. And the judge decides that the codes are not useful in this context and in fact have no, um, you know, legitimate basis for their use. So the codes are not incorporated into the legislation by reference and not part of the regulations. The codes essentially do not form the law in the province of Nova Scotia and it was not appropriate for the SPCA to use them. And I actually... uh, you know, I sort of like this because I don't think that non-binding, voluntarily produced codes produced by non-government bodies should form the basis of our laws. I think our laws should be democratically enacted by legislators who can be held accountable for them. So in this respect, I actually really appreciate those remarks. Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think the the idea, like a lot of uh, people like to promote this idea that these codes are law. And I think this case quite clearly shows that they're not. Uh, you can't force someone to adhere to the standards in the code which undermines a lot of the, you know, comments to the contrary. And, and, and I think is important. I think we need to understand what these codes are. I spoke about this at the last um, uh, Canadian Animal Law Conference. And I do think that is a real concern that we have this murky law. Sort of goes back to our discussion at the top of the podcast, doesn't it, about what the COVID guidelines actually are. Are they law or aren't they law? Well, I mean, again, I think the judge does a good job of showing they're not actually law. Like you can sub- refer to them all you like. They're not the law. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. Can we add another one last thing? And I just want to uh, break this point. Um, I'm going to be honest, like the judge, um, the judge is not particularly fond of the SPCA inspectors. And that comes through in the discussion. And I'm not here to criticize the SPCA inspectors who I'm sure are doing very hard work. We've talked about this before. But again, like um, it, it's almost when you're reading through this that the, the, the judge wants to hold the SPCA to a standard sort of along the line of the police and is not always thrilled 
with their testimony, says some things about their testimony, doesn't agree with it or doesn't, I think it's a sheet, doesn't buy it, isn't isn't listening, prefers the evidence of the accused. Well, man, I, maybe it's, you know, not the best place or time to say so, but I'm going to continue to reiterate that I am not a fan of SPCA being involved directly in investigations. And I don't think that cases like this help their case. Um, regardless of what happened here, the judge clearly was not impressed with the SPCA and I believe feels they went over the top. I'm not sure whether that's true or not, right? I'm not here to judge what the judge did, but I am always worried about that perception. And I think that is, to me, the reason why SPCA inspectors should not be involved in this. I will continue to say that the SPCA in every province is in a conflict of interest by nature of the work that they do. And I do think that that seems to percolate through this decision as well. And not every judge is going to say that, and not every judge is going to find that. But I do think that in terms of this, like, I think what comes out of this decision, to me, you read this, it's like, oh, SPCA overreacted. SPCA made a, you know, classic, came in, ordered all these things around. I think it just gives grist to that sort of concern that animal welfare inspectors are biased. And I'm I'm not suggesting that they are. I'm suggesting that perception is dangerous to the enforcement of animal welfare uh, uh, laws. And I think you're not going to have this sort of thing happening when you have, you know, non-SPCA inspectors involved in enforcing these types of statutes. Yeah, yeah. There we are. All right. All right. That Moving was a back lot. to Alberta. Let's move on. Yeah. Moving back oh, to no. Alberta. This is not, not a, good, a news good news story. story. No. no. So interestingly, there's an organization called the Plant. There was an organization called the Plant Protein Alliance <laughs> of Alberta, which I actually didn't know about until this story came out. Uh, but the organization was designed oh, I follow to- them on Twitter. They're a oh. great Twitter follow. Oh, cool. Yeah. They would talk about all the plant protein stuff that was going on in Alberta. I mean, their, their, their objective was to stimulate and turn out. Alberta, which is like the perfect agricultural conditions for plant protein and really make it a hub. And maybe, just maybe, Camille, get out of the idea that we need to, you know, have cows so we can feed our families. That's the only way. Well, maybe not with plant protein. Let's maybe be a lentils leader could play a role here. Maybe. Peas, lentils, all that good stuff. So shockingly, apparently a few weeks ago, the provincial egg minister was talking about the organization and saying it's a leading example of how the government's trying to <laughs> attract plant protein processors to the province. Oh, yes. But these processors are going elsewhere on the prairies, apparently. So Manitoba, Saskatchewan, and I happen to know a little bit about some of the great work that those provinces are doing. And it seems like the government decided to just axe the funding. You know, not even that much funding. It was- It's tiny. few hundred thousand dollars, which they were getting. $250,000. But on March 31st, they were told that they had no more funding. And so they have to set up shops. So the government's saying that this is a priority, but it's not putting any money where its mouth is. Yeah. And they were doing a pretty, they were doing some pretty good work. Like I thought they were like, everybody was talking about them very positively about the type of work that they were doing. And like, you know, they were, they were suggesting that like, I've really enjoyed, I mean, I'm not saying I'm like a deep follower or know what they're doing, but like they're constantly tweeting out plant protein ideas and constantly trying to promote the idea of plant protein in Alberta as being a viable type of thing. And like to just sort of get wiped out after having done all the work of setting them up, you know, 
know, over $250,000, like three years, their grants have been $800,000. And it's like the office says they've done great work. We thank them for their efforts. I think they have done good work. I think the idea of trying to attract plant protein investment to Alberta was positive and just got wiped out. It just, it just seems so silly. Like it seems such like such a silly thing to cut. Yeah. Yeah. Just such, such a small amount really. But I said this on Twitter and I'll say it here too. I would be shocked, Peter, if I didn't learn that the cattle industry had some role in this. It just, it just (laughs) seems all too suspicious, right? Like it's the biggest, you know, know, lobbyist in that province has immense amounts of political power. And then this decision gets made. So I don't know what conversations went on, but it would be plausible to me. I'm just happy, Camille, that with this story, this story was obviously bad for Alberta, but I'm happy that our zero of the month, at least our zero of the episode is not from Alberta. That's good news to me, at least. Yes. Oh, wait. Sorry. (laughs) Oops. Oh, no. So let's be clear. This was zero number two, right? This was like, this was like a fallback zero, but we've got a better one for Alberta. So yeah, I you mean, guys Alberta just, just, just having, having a rough time, having a rough time. Yeah, well, we'll get there on the uh, bright side. I'm not even sure this is a bright side story. I, mean, I think this is a giveth and taketh away sort of thing, but I guess it's technically a bright side story. The CFIA are, I like to call them our friends at the CFIA. Don't you Camille? Our friends at the CFIA whose credo is animals always first. We know that, right? That is how they live and abide by that credo. They announced new import rules for dogs because like if we're going to bring in import breeding dogs and boy, do we ever apparently, we need to have a few more rules to govern how that's going to take place. Yeah, and we've talked on this podcast before about how bringing dogs into this country is big business right now, especially during a pandemic when everyone wants a designer puppy. So dogs are being brought in getting from, on this, are we? No, but all over Eastern Europe, dogs are being shipped to Canada. They're being resold here and often in troubling ways. So, you know, first of all, the, the conditions of the import can be problematic and dogs have died. There's a great expose that CBC did last summer about some of that, um, you know, some of those problems. And uh, second, sometimes dogs are sick. They might not have the required vaccinations because they're breeding, uh, because they've been bred en masse. They might have physical problems that are inherent in dog breeding. So a lot Lots of problems here. So what's the CFIA doing about it? Okay, I'll admit I have not had a lot of time for this to absorb and, and sink in. So I'd have to think about this more, but they're like requiring rabies vaccinations 20 days, 28 days before export. Uh, requiring a few more hoops. Yeah, more they're putting hoops. in a few more hoops. That's what it amounts to. There's like, they want more information about the travel route from the country of origin to the final destination, I guess, so that people don't say that they're coming from a country that doesn't have a reputation for puppy mills when actually they are, but just routed through a second country. And And we know, Camille, that from the press release, they're committed to protecting the health of animals through import controls. And it's, again, it's not like we've seen stories where sick puppies were released to a breeder, you know, after flying overseas and some of them, sorry, we have seen stories like that. Mm, I think we've seen a lot of those stories. we Actually. reported on those stories a little while ago. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what to say. I, 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 the breeding thing drives me as crazy as anything that goes on. And, you know, I, I made, um, I, I don't know why I'm going off on breeder stuff. It just makes me so sad. I can literally, I have friends who don't listen to the show cause they don't care about animals. And I have uh, like more friends than I can count that have got breeder puppies during this pandemic. It's just unbelievable. I can't, I don't know anybody who's picked up a, a shelter 
shelter dog. And and we we recently took our shelter mixed breed Chihuahua, who's a bit of a handful in his own right, but that's for another day. Um, to to a dog park, and it's just every. I don't know about you, Camille. I amuse myself at dog parks by trying to count the number of purebreds versus the number of you know mixed bred, and it's just it's overwhelming. It's like it's like it's got to be 70, 30. I sometimes amuse myself by counting how many tails are docked and ears are pinned. It's mm. crazy how many there are. Just huge numbers of all those things. And it's just, I don't know if Edmonton is an outlier compared to Toronto, but man, it is just amazing to me. It's purebred, purebred, purebred. Everyone wants their dog the way they want it. Let's design it. Doesn't matter if it comes from overseas. And then when things go badly, as we've talked about in past shows, prosecute the fraudsters. I'm like, you guys create the fucking market. It's just Oh, again with the F-bombs here. This is a spicy episode. (laughs) The breeding breeding thing really drives me nuts. Well, I will say this this news release does nothing to chip away at the premise that we should just be breeding all these dogs. It's, you know, nothing about encouraging adoption. What the government does actually is quote this guy, Jeff Cornett, who's the executive director of the Canadian Kennel Club, which is a dog breeder industry group. And he says that the CKC appreciates the steps that the CFI has taken and is so glad that the CFI is encouraging Canadians to make informed choices about responsible dog ownership and to promote the benefits of buying a purebred dog from an accountable Canadian breeder. Accountable. Which is hilarious because let me just say that the Canadian Kennel Club publishes a puppy list which is supposed to help people find adoptable, not adoptable, purchasable puppies from breeders. And there was a CBC expose again last summer on this puppy list which showed that all kinds of puppy mills are on there. All these importers are on there. Like it's a joke. Yeah, I mean again we could go on we're we're going into a breeder type show we've done breeder stuff before just let me say this if you're going to buy from a breeder whatever you do can you just do me a favor no matter what happens don't post a negative review on Google because then you know they might have too many dogs and then you know just things could go haywire like it's bad no matter what so like you know I don't know what to tell you it's like you know all these stories link together at some point Camille yeah yeah there we are All right, let's get to our final story. It has been a long news show. I told you there's been so much while we're talking about dogs. Hell, you know, killing dogs is not a good idea, but killing wolves, on the other hand, in BC, great idea. Apparently, according to the BC government, let's kill them from a helicopter, Camille. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So Pacific Wild is actually challenging the um, government's wolf cull program in BC because they think it's unlawful. It seems to contradict wildlife regulations and federal aviation laws. And while this challenge is ongoing, the government actually killed 237 more wolves. Yeah, there's so many interesting parts of this story. I have to admit, I have to admit when I when I heard about the story and the nature of Pacific Wilds challenge, it really reminded me of, uh, believe it or not, of um, Nelson Mandela's autobiography. What a what a link! And you'd think, why I wasn't is that? Expecting you to say that. <laughs> Well, Nelson Mandela was a lawyer. Uh, I don't know if everyone knows that, but he was. That's what he did. And in his early career, his 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 use of the law was designed to expose loopholes in the apartheid law, right? That in, instead of attacking apartheid directly, he found loopholes in the law that showed that the government was acting illegally with certain types of evictions and stuff. And he was very successful with that. Well, that's what Pacific Wild is doing here, right? Rather than challenging the cull as being 
being wrong. And, and it, it's clear that Pacific Wild thinks the cull is wrong, right? And that it's inhumane and all that stuff. They're challenging the aeronautics regulations or saying that you haven't followed the proper process. These are all process arguments. And I looked at them um, in the website to show, you know, it's sort of, it's trying to find that the government hasn't technically followed its own law and, and therefore acted illegally in killing all these wolves. And that's, it, it, I, I say use all the tools in your arsenal, but it just, it reminded me of the fact that like, if the government wants to call these wolves, wolves, it can do so, right? It, it's not addressing the core issue per se, which is why are we calling wolves? Now that does come out of the story because I think it's very clear that the idea that we need to call wolves, I don't know, Camille, we've talked about the book Never Cry Wolf before on this podcast, but I remember watching that movie in the 70s and wondering like the whole idea of wolves being responsible for declining caribou counts. I thought that was dispelled decades ago and it's still being contested now, but the government is going ahead and it's just terrible, by the way, killing entire packs of wolves, right? They just track one wolf back to the back to the pack and then take them all out from a helicopter. It's just brutal. It's disgusting. Sounds They're just brutal. wiping out entire families. It's, it's horrible. And you're right. The caribou. I can't imagine those are clean kills either. I find oh, it really no. hard to believe. No, shooting from a helicopter and, you know, like it's bumpy usually conditions. not. No. I mean, yeah. it reminds me of when I used to be out at the seal hunt and they'd always say, oh, we're shooting them. It's great. But no, you're mm. shooting them mm. from a boat that's like going up down in massive ocean swells on a slippery surface where seals might fall under the ice and it just ends up being horrible, which I'm sure this is too. Yeah, so it's awful. And obviously you're right about the caribou issue. Caribou habitat is a problem. It's not that wolves are killing all the caribous and everybody knows this. So shout out to our friend Rebecca Bredder, who's the lawyer on that case. Yeah, keep fighting. Good fight. Good fight to be fighting. Heroes and Zeros. Okay, Peter, I think that it's time for everyone's favorite segment, Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Well, the hero today is a callback to an episode. This is, I don't know, they weren't a hero, but we did talk about them in a previous show. We're just so excited. Uh, we are going to, we're going to, we're going to put on our best finery, Camille, and celebrate like it's the Oscars. <laughs> and uh, we get to celebrate the Oscars winning best documentary was one of our favorite films of the year my octopus teacher yay oh i loved this film so love much love that movie oh yeah, it was me so too. touching and apparently everyone else did too cuz you don't win this category unless you've made a really good product so congratulations to the filmmakers for this incredible look into the life of another being which is really what it is it takes you down to the octopus's perspective on the world and uh, I, I just think it's a masterpiece. Yeah, it is. It's really a great film. Absolute masterpiece. I wish it would lead to declining calamari sales, but I mean, who knows, right? Um, but I mean, one can hope when yeah. you recognize how sophisticated and beautiful octopuses are. It's octopuses, it is not octopuses. octopi. I, I, yeah. I know for you, it's always going to be octopuses either way. Um, but yes, I, I do think that's, uh, I, I really think that's wonderful. And I'm very happy that they won. And hopefully that really just brings more attention to the film. Yeah. Okay. For every hero, there's oh, a zero. Know. And as oh, we mentioned, no. we're heading back to your home province, Peter, because why wouldn't we? We're going to actually you know, combine. Camille. Yeah, we're going to combine we're all gonna combine our, our rants from the day. earlier about COVID with <laughs> animal cruelty. It's, it's sort of like perfectly cap off this episode, I think. I don't know about you, Camille, but personally, it has been tough dealing with the lockdown. So personally, when I need to get out and get some fresh air and, you know, mingle again with some of my friends, what 
comes to my mind? Rodeo. Rodeo, Camille. We need to get out and harm some animals and, you know, drag them down by their heads, flip them, turn them, rope them. Let's cause some cruelty. That is the best way to get over COVID. It is certainly the best coast for the owners and operators of No More Lockdowns Rodeo, combining all my favorite things, disrespect for COVID laws and animal cruelty. Wow, this could be the zero of the year, Camille. Yeah, yeah. I think we're going to have to remember this episode for our year end. contender. <laughs> yeah, so a bunch of people. How many people was it that actually gathered? Thousands. You can watch it online. It's crazy. Like yeah. even Kenny was pissed, not about the rodeo. Let me be clear. <laughs> he talked, he thought he made it very clear in his speech that rodeo is awesome. It's our provincial sport if he has anything to say about it, and we need to do much more rodeo when we can do it in compliance with COVID. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah, they love rodeo, but he's at oh, least yeah. paying lip service to the idea that we shouldn't be gathering en masse with thousands of people. The video is actually quite amazing. There's just a parking lot that's a sea of cars. And then there's all these people, you know, sitting outside. So that's something. But no one's wearing a mask. No one is wearing a mask. I think I saw one mask mask. in the entire video. And of course, there's all kinds of animal cruelty, the calf roping, you know, horse stuff that you expect at rodeos, which is horrifying. And, you know, you'd think, Peter, I know that enforcement agents don't really want to enforce the laws on rodeo, which I argue they could, you know, prosecute rodeo events in certain circumstances, but we haven't really seen much uptake on that yet. I get it. But you would think that like Alberta Health Services, the RCMP, some law enforcement agency, any one of them would maybe take umbrage to the fact that thousands of people are gathering illegal at this illegally at this rodeo. You would think that. But guess what? The I RCMP think. showed up two officers for a little while and then they left. And that's it. I think they, I, I, I saw footage of one or two tickets being given out, but I'm not sure. Like, I don't know. They don't say anything about that in the story. <laughs> uh, I don't remember that, but I, I did. I did. The premier did, did not make any mention of some, enforcement against any tic- of the organizers yeah. in his statements. But no, the spokesperson from his office said of. it's not the place yeah. for elected officials to direct law enforcement, which is interesting because the Calgary police recently <laughs> said that the province has been directing them Love not it. to ticket people who are breaking COVID regulations. So I don't know what well, to think if we about get, that. If we start talking about if we start talking about the way Kenny approached Kenny's approach to law enforcement, we're gonna go back on the rant we started to begin with. Yeah, so yeah, let's cut good, ourselves off good right place there. For us to sign off, Camille. Wow, what a show that was. Woof, I feel like I got a lot off my chest. All right, yes, me too, me too. It was good to catch up with you, Peter. Good to catch up with all our listeners. And I hope that you all stay safe. We are in the home stretch. We are in the home stretch. Stay well, everybody. And uh, yeah, we'll catch you again soon on Paw and Order. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Paw and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Pawn Order. Oh, 
For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Oh!